The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2015, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon was from Friday, June 5th. Boston Beer presents Beer vs. Red, presented by Jim Cook and Jennifer Glanville, Boston Beer Company. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to Savor. My name is Tom McCormick. I'm with the California Craft Brewers Association. Anyone here from California? Yes. All right. Yeah, where's that? Um, I'm here on behalf of the Brewers Association. The Brewers Association is the national trade association representing the over 3,400 independently owned craft breweries in this country that we have now. The Brewers Association also puts on this great event, Savor, and also another uh, little beer festival that you might have heard about back in Denver every fall called the Great American Beer Festival. Has anyone heard of that? Yeah, it's the largest beer festival in the country, and that's being held uh, in late September of this year, once again, in Denver. So a couple of housekeeping notes for you. It's uh, a little bit detailed, but very important. You have two glasses in front of you. So one is the beer glass, the Sam Adams beer glass, and the beer uh, sampling will be poured into the beer glass, and the wine samples will be poured into your saver glass. So you have some water in front of you. It'd be great if you can um, just kind of clean out and... um, Pour the uh, the water into the dump buckets that are also in front of you. And one thing that we would like to ask you to do, I know it's very def- difficult, especially this early in the evening, but uh, please refrain from trying any of the beers or the wine or the food until our uh, speakers cue you and tell you to do that. That way we can all do it together and, and they can walk you through those tastes. Um, also, tonight, a little added bonus is in the back of the room, we will have a table uh, set up with a special beer glass. You can take that with you as you leave. You can also take the, the beer glass here, the Sam Adams uh, beer glass with you, so you'll have a handful of glasses as you walk back out there and enjoy the evening. One other quick note is this uh, salon and all the salons tonight and tomorrow night are recorded. And those will be made available for you to listen to at the website craftbeer.com. So you can tune into that once they're posted and and hear it yourself. But you can hear all the other educational salons again both tonight and tomorrow. Because of that, uh, I'm going to try to get a microphone on everyone when they ask a question. It's hard to get around the room, but if I can, I'm going to try to get to you and and have you ask your question into the microphone. We would like to ask you to hold off on asking the questions until the end, and we will have plenty of time at the end for uh, questions. With that, I am honored to introduce two people who are very well known in the industry and really don't need an introduction, but we have Jennifer Granville, who is the brewer at Boston Beer Company, makers of Sam Adams, and the founder and brewmaster, Jim Cook. So with that, I'll hand it over. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is pretty cool, actually. Everybody's very elegant. So, um, 
Usually when I talk to drinkers, it's not this fancy. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to, and, and I guess it's recorded, so I can't say any bad words. At least I've been instructed. Um, and let me just spend a few minutes um, talking about kind of my perspective on beer and food and on uh, my perspective on, on wine and food. Uh, and I guess... I come from a somewhat unique background. Uh, I, before I started Sam Adams, I was the uh, sixth consecutive uh, oldest son in my family to become a brewer. Um, I grew up in a brewing family. My father was a brewmaster. Uh, my grandfather was a brewmaster. My great-grandfather was a brewmaster. My great-great-grandfather was a brewmaster. My great-great-great-grandfather was a brewmaster. So my family has been making beer here in the United States for 170-some years, uh, uh, quite a long time. So uh, I grew up surrounded by beer. Uh, so I come at beer with maybe... Um, an appreciation of uh, its history, uh, its role in the United States, in even human civilization, uh, and with uh, also uh, an involvement and uh, a passion for uh, the the rebirth of beer in the United States uh, that started 30-some years ago. I, I think when I started Sam Adams, there were, I don't know, maybe a dozen craft breweries in the United States, something like that. And uh, there's just a couple of us from uh, the beginning days. I think the only two left from the early 80s, first half of the 80s, it's still are running their own breweries. Uh, it's uh, Sam Adams in Sierra Nevada. So I've, I've seen uh, quite uh, an arc uh, of history in beer. And I, I come at beer, with, therefore, with an appreciation both of the current explosion of quality, creativity, and innovation embodied by the craft brewing movement and by uh, several centuries of history in beer making that preceded the American craft brewing movement because beer did not start uh, with American craft beer. There were great beers uh, a couple, 100, 150 years ago. In fact, the recipe for Sam Adams Boston Lager came from my great-great-grandfather's brewery. So it is proof that 130 years ago, American brewers were making some of the best beers in the world. This is not a new phenomenon. And I also grew up around beer, and I didn't know what wine was uh, for uh, probably the first 20 years of my life. Um, and so I, I guess um, I approach wine with an appreciation for its deep history. Its roots are uh, as old as the roots of beer, both of them, you know, dating back some, you know, 12,000 years to the very beginning of human civilization. But I guess I also come at it uh, naively. Um, I don't know 
I can't say shed, I'm sorry. I don't know much about wine. Um, all I know is what I taste. So maybe I come at it um, just as a naive taster. Uh, and what we're going to do tonight is uh, basically pair a single beer with three different foods, all of which are considered great wine pairings and, and not really appreciated as beer pairings. Uh, if I pull back uh, from this whole topic and look at it very broadly, um, what I would say is that beer is a more versatile and normally better complement to great food than wine is. And I know that's a big statement, but uh, I, I, I believe that's true. I believe there are, actual, I mean, there are solid reasons for it. When you think about wine, okay, wine uh, has one ingredient. That's it. Grapes. Nothing more. And when you make wine, you know, essentially, you only have two choices. Skins or no skins, and steel or oak. And those are the primary tools of the winemaker's art. I mean, there are some little tweaks you can do along the way, but that's kind of what you got. Contrast that to the brewer's art. The brewer has any ingredient that they want to use. Uh, a brewer is like a chef. A brewer can use anything they want. When I think about our beers, I mean, we use to make beers over the years, some of the things, uh, we use rose hips, we use powdered plums. I once made a beer uh, with a chef from New York, David Burke. Uh, he brought 40 pounds of grilled beef hearts, and I made a really nice brown ale out of that. Um, we use cranberries, we use hibiscus, we use weird West African spice called grains of paradise. I've made beer with cranberries, uh, once made beer with chickens, and that's a whole nother story. Uh, and my point is, any ingredient that I think would be interesting in a beer, I can try it. Um, and we've made beers that didn't work with lots of nasty things, um, mostly like hot, you know, habanero, things like that, but a bunch of other nasty things that didn't work. But as a brewer, I have all those choices. I can choose anything I want to see if I can make, it, make my beer more interesting. Winemaker doesn't have those choices. And again, this is very biased, only personal, but... Uh, I gotta be honest, to me, red wine kind of tastes like red wine. Uh, I mean, I, it's not that easy. You, we'll try it tonight, but it's pretty hard to tell the difference between. I mean, we got a Cabernet, we got a Zinfandel. They kind of taste the same. Uh, and, you know, not surprisingly, given you know the paucity of ingredients uh, allowed to the winemaker. And white wine kind of tastes like white wine. Some has more oak, and that's kind of it. Now, there's obviously more to it, but as a result, you know, wine is really uh, focused in its food uh, pairings with 
uh, kind of the, the product of French and Northern Italian cuisines. And 40 years ago, you know, that was kind of what sparked the culinary revolution in the United States. It was a handful of people, often trained at Cordon Bleu, that brought you know, really great French cuisine to the United States. You know, these iconic figures uh, like Julia Child and Craig Claiborne and James Beard were all instrumental in bringing appreciation of good food into the United States, and they were all classic French cuisines. And then we had, you know, some uh, classic Northern Italian cuisines, and those are pretty wine-friendly. But today... You know, the driving forces in innovation in uh, the culinary world in the United States, they're not Cordon Bleu and Tuscany. We draw our inspiration today from all these other cuisines, Chinese, Mexican, Thai, uh, you know, Guatemalan, Indian, Moroccan, Ethiopian. Those are where all uh, the interesting ingredients, dishes, infusions are coming from today. And guess what? All those cuisines, they're tropical cuisines. They don't pair that well with wine. I mean, try pairing Chinese food with wine. Uh, it really isn't that good. Uh, you know, Indian food with wine. Mm. Mexican food with wine. Moroccan food with wine. Um, they're too big. They're too spicy. They're too, you know, overpowering. And as a result, uh, those cuisines pair better with beer. All of those tropical cuisines are much better accompanied by beer, partly because the big malt body in beer will uh, cut some of that heat, and beer is just more complex. There's just more going on in beer than in wine because of uh, the ability to use all these different ingredients. Uh, I mean, even a basic beer has four ingredients instead of one. So, you know, just from the get-go, uh, we're four-fold uh, ahead of most winemakers. Uh, so, to me, beer is a better complement to food than wine. It has more complexity and uh, also brings out uh, the flavors in food without overpowering them. And you can drink it with your food. You know, it's not 12% alcohol. You don't have, nobody, you know, gives you uh, a plate of great food, a glass of beer, and a glass of water. You don't need that. But with wine, you gotta have a glass of water with it because there's too much alcohol in the wine. You know, you can't accompany every bite with a sip of wine like you can with beer. So that is my, that's the Jim Cook view of food and wine pairing uh, together and beer and food maybe doing a little better job. And tonight, and I think I could easily convince you that, you know, beer goes better with all those cuisines I mentioned. That's a slam dunk. Tonight, we're going to take it to the next level um, and, you know, take it right to their house. So we're going to pair uh, some great wines with foods that are 
classically considered great things to pair wine with that are not considered, you know, the uh, core beer pairings. We're going to do, you know, the Cabernet and beef, which seems like an automatic. And I'm going to pair it with something more versatile than any wine, which is Sam Adams Boston Lager. Sam Adams Boston Lager is uh, an extremely versatile beer because it is a beautiful illustration of the central flavor elements of beer. The core flavor structure of beer is a balance between the body and sweetness of the malt and the spiciness and bitterness of the hops. That's the core flavor structure of beer. Like with wine, it's kind of tannins and acidity and fruit. Um, Beer is body, sweetness, spiciness, and bitterness. And I, I'll, um, you've been very patient. You had that beer in front of you. Um, so I'll just finish by uh, asking you to take a, a mindful sip of the Boston Lager. And in about a three or four second parade across your palate, you will get first body as the beer enters your mouth and you feel the overall texture. Then sweetness as the malt hits the front of your tongue where the sweet taste buds are concentrated. Then spiciness as uh, the beer warms up in your mouth and the aromatics go into your retronasal and nasal passage where you actually sense uh, all the aromatics that you think you taste, but you actually smell them. If you close your nose and drink it, you won't get any of them. And then you will get this lingering, uh, relatively pleasant bitterness that brewers call the hop signature. So take a sip, look for body, sweetness, spiciness, and bitterness in about a three or four second sequence. Boston Lager is the best example that I know of in the beer world that will give you all four of those elements, each tangible and distinct. So, thank you. I hate going after Jim, so... (laughs) work with me here. Um, I just wanted to explain sort of the tasting order. Um, I I know the first time we were working on this, um, someone asked why we would have beef first, um, seeming like it's it's full flavored. It is full flavored, but when you're doing something like this, you want to do it by the intensity, the weight of it. And while beef is very full flavored, it actually cleanses very quickly off the palate. So we're starting with the beef. We're going to move on to the chocolate. The chocolate is actually very coating, as you can imagine. As it melts down, it's very nice, so that lingers a little longer. And then the the Roquefort cheese that we have is very intense, as you can smell it probably from where it is, so that's going to be last. What I want you to do is we're going to do the wine first and then we're going to do the beer. I know that um, there's small sample sizes, so in an ideal world, what I'd like you to do is take a sip of the wine, a small bite of the beef, a sip of the wine. 
Then I'd like you to put some beef in your mouth and take a sip of the wine. So you're going to have to try to get four bites out of that. So I know some of you guys maybe not going to work. But um, because I want you to see the difference of when you have beer and wine in your mouth with the food at the same time. And if you can, if you can try to work that, you're going to notice a big difference in that. Um, and it's going to help you really see the, the pairings and the flavors. Um, Jim talked about the sort of complexity of beer. I mean, it is a, a proven fact scientifically. So all my wine friend experts really can't disagree with me when I talk about that. Um, the other key thing is alcohol masks flavors. So if you think about that, even with beers that have higher alcohol content, um, the more moderate to medium alcohol beers, a lot more flavors come out. All those compounds and all those ingredients that we've chosen for flavors are more accessible to your palate. So it makes for more interesting pairings. So I want you to start um, and take some notes. Feel free. There's some spaces on the bottom. But start with the wine and then um, have a small bite and go back and forth. And then you can go on to the beer. Um, and then we'll talk about the wine and the beer and see what you guys got. Enjoy. Just to keep an eye on the time, I'm just going to keep going. Um, but the wine here, um, we worked with a wine expert. So um, being a brewer, being a brewer, um, certainly not wine experts. We know flavor, but um, wanted to make sure that we were choosing wines that were really representative for these traditional pairings um, for wine and food. So Cabernet Sauvignon, obviously, sort of the most popular pairing with beef. Um, in this wine, I get a lot of black currant. Um, it's got some dark cherry. It's fairly dry. Um, what I find really interesting in this, and if you think about these pairings as we go along, sometimes a pairing makes one of the one of the pairings taste better or more um, brings it more to the surface of sort of flavors in, in your mind and on your palate. In this case, I feel like the beef actually makes the wine taste better. Um, it actually the tannins are a little bit reduced, so it's it's a nice pairing, and it makes the wine showcase a little more of that fruit character. Um, and it, it it sort of is a dry finish, and it and because the beef is a quick, I feel like it finishes a little too quickly on the palate, um, and that's what I sort of get with that. I'll let Jim talk about the Boston Lager and the beef. Thank you. Actually, I thought the wine was pretty good. Um, <laughs> really nice, soft tannins. It's not like some, you know, Parkerized tannin bomb. Um, so uh, the sommelier that we worked with, uh, I, to me, picked some very nice wines. Um, the Boston Lager and the beef. What I liked about uh, that pairing was several things. First. There's a nice matching of intensities. Uh, it, neither one is overpowering the other. They are kind of equal companions in the taste experience. Um, I also liked uh, the complementarity of the, uh, the, the caramelized, uh, the, the seared caramelized part of the beef. Um, that is the same reaction, it's called the Maillard reaction, that uh, introduces the color to beer. Uh, to make a beer of this amber color, you, you caramelize the sugars in the malt. And it is roughly the same reaction that happens 
when you sear the beef. And the, to me, this beef, well, the, the, it had a, a, a caramelized taste from the grilling of it. And there's also, this is, to me, very nice beef. And there's a little bit of sweetness in it, which, to me, was matched by the drop of sweetness that you get at, at the beginning of the Sam Adams taste experience. And I also like that they allowed each other to linger. Uh, nothing, you know, knocked out the flavor of the other side of the pairing. Whereas the wine kind of, you know, dominated and you lost the taste of the beef. It didn't linger that long. So next we'll move on to the chocolate. Um, you know, chocolate and, and wine has been sort of a very popular pairing for many years. A lot of people don't think about chocolate and beer. Um, if you think about chocolate, um, I'm not a chocolate lover, so I'm very unbiased in my opinions of chocolate and how I taste it. Um, and so you might not think about it, but if you remove some of the sweetness of it and, you, and the flavors that you're getting are really around nutty and citrus flavors. So all those citrus flavors, and one reason it pairs well with wine is because of all the citrus flavors, but that's equally why it pairs so well with beer because of the hops that are in the beer. So um, in this particular pairing, this Zinfandel that we paired it with, um, this is, you know, Zinfandel's a big wine. It's got some smoky character. Um, it's got some, uh, you know, it's going to have some berry character. It's a little nutty. Um, it's spicy. It's got some cherry. So if you do the same thing where you can sort of have it in your mouth at the same time, I want you to think about how those flavors are melding together. This is the same wine. I think so. Huh? Yeah, we need to dump. Get started. And while you're while you're having this with the wine, I want you to think about how the flavor is is what happens on your palate when they're together on your palate between the beer and the wine, and how the finish is because I think that's most distinct within this pairing. And specifically, not to lead you, but uh, think about the finish. I think that's what I found really interesting in here because. Thinking about the fruit flavors and wine lingering on your palate, this, the wine and the chocolate have a very short finish um, to me in this pairing. Um, pleasant flavors together, but really short. Um, and, and chocolate does tend to linger, so after you have that with the wine, you still have the chocolate, but you don't have any evidence on the wine on your palate, um, and you'll notice a, a difference of that with the beer. And I'll let Jim talk about the beer. Thank you. 
I thought this was a very interesting pairing. Um, I mean, to me, the, the wine and the chocolate were kind of like uh, disconnected set of flavors. I mean, the wine was it's a very nice wine as well, like fruity, acidic, tannic. Um, whereas the chocolate was primarily roasted, sweet, slightly bitter. Um, and those are characteristics that uh, you can find in beer. Uh, you get the roastiness from the malt. You obviously get a, a sweetness from the malt, which complements the chocolate. You can find the sweetness in both of them. Um, and there's a bitterness in the chocolate that uh, complements the bitterness in the beer. And I also like the ability of the beer uh, to clean my palate. Uh, the chocolate has fats in it. And beer has this wonderful cleansing property. It actually comes from the fact that beer is carbonated and uh, there is a physical action of beer on your tongue. When uh, the beer hits your tongue, it warms up. That forces the carbon dioxide out of the beer, and those bubbles will literally scrub your taste buds, as opposed to leaving the fat, coating them, and kind of numbing them. I mean, when you, drink, when you eat something that's really oily, you become less able to taste it because your tongue gets coated with the fats and the oils. The beer will cleanse your tongue and keep the intensity of the chocolate up. Thanks. We are going to move on to the port, which they're going to start pouring. Um, so for those of you who may be port drinkers already, um, this is an excellent port that we are pouring this evening. Um, it's got really nice kind of red berry jammy character. Um, you know, when we were working on this and, and looking at the, the different flavors, I was really interested to see how these would pair up together because um, port's so great and great with strong cheeses like this. Um, so if you think about these flavors that you're getting, um, it's got a little bit of sweetness, um, berry sweetness, but then also just a, a lot of distinct kind of cloying sweetness to it. Um, so it, with all of that intensity, it should stand up well to the, to the cheese. And again, try a little bit um, of the port, then the cheese, and then put the port and cheese in your mouth at the same time, and then do the same with the Boston lager. Could I ask a favor? Yes. Could I get some more beer? Absolutely. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, if you'll, yeah. Oh. Oh, Can you bring a bottle? Bring okay. We have extra glasses here. Okay. If you have the port, you can go ahead and get started. 
gone well with this It's so acidic. They pile on the acidity of the wine. He hasn't steered me wrong yet. <laughs> After all these years. Thank you. Not yet, but I'm trying. They're good. I know you keep trying. So in this one, it's really interesting because um, as you've tasted with the cheese, not only does it have a lot of funk in it, um, it's very salty. Um, and so that, that salty kind of savory character, um, this is a good example of contrasting with flavors with the flavors with the port. Um, it does work, but it's not as it's almost like they're competing to me with the flavors. Um, you have a kind of a big, rich, heavy, kind of berry-forward flavor, um, and it's nice with that. But I, I just I felt like they weren't as integrated as they could be in a pairing. So, I thought this pairing worked very well on both of them. Um, I mean, I, this was a great cheese. It's a huge, creamy, acidic, salty. Um, I could almost like taste uh, the cow chewing its cud. Uh, I, and it, it kind of reminds me of, of the origins of beer and cheese, which are kind of similar. Uh, you know, beer is comes from grain uh, and then is broken down by uh, yeast uh, into what we have in our glass uh, before we can actually drink it. And um, cheese starts with grain as well. You know, the cows are typically grain-fed. Grain is a grass. So... Both beer and cheese come from the same source. Um, one goes through, uh, you know, the uh, ruminations and the uh, digestive system of uh, cows and goats, and the other goes through 
the fermentation and the mashing process at a brewery, and they're not that dissimilar. Um, what I got in the flavor of a cheese like this, which is really amped up cheese, uh, really would not have done well with the red wines we had earlier. You need something with a lot of sweetness in it. Otherwise, the cheese, the acidity of the cheese, and the acidity of the typical wine just amplify each other. It's why we uh, picked a port to do it. There's a beautiful, to me, a beautiful port. Um, it's a Taylor Fladgate, which is uh, several of their vintages have been uh, given 100-point ratings by the Wine Spectator. Uh, you know, I think they've given out like 50 or 60 of those in history. So this is a really terrific uh, vintage port. What I got uh, out of the beer with the cheese, it... Uh, to me, what it did, it would cut through the flavor of the cheese. And, and to me, food and beer or food and wine pairings are all about either cutting, complementing, or contrasting. And here, uh, the lightness and the crispness of a good beer cut through that really huge, uh, fatty, intense flavor and highlighted in both the beer and the cheese um, some of the other flavor elements. Uh, a little bit of nuttiness and uh, that, that creaminess of the cheese that the beer was able to cleanse off my palate so I could taste it again. And I think uh, the way... We've structured this, Thomas structured it wisely, is to do all this drinking um, and then open it up for questions. Because I hate being, you know, questioned by sober people. It's usually boring and often annoying. So um, we've got, we wanted to leave uh, at least 15 minutes uh, at the end of it just so that, you know, people can ask uh, Jennifer and I any questions that you have uh, and expose any ignorances that we might have. And Tom has a microphone so that uh, all of us can hear questions. Thank and it you. can be questions about anything. When I told my friends at the office that I was coming tonight, uh, we have a, a gentleman in the office who knows everything. And he said there's a hop shortage in the world. Is this true? Like most gentlemen in the office, <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. You can say it. Yes. Uh, well, it's all like taped and everything, so I'm supposed to not say shit. So they don't know what they're talking about. Um, no. Uh, it's okay. You can drink the hoppiest beer you want. Um, luckily, the hop growing community uh, is responsive to the needs of brewers. It's not to say every brewer gets every hop that they want to have. Um, there is not a glut, which would uh, result in everybody being able to get anything. So uh, it's hop growing is I mean, it's farming and they will grow what we tell them we want them to grow and pay them 
to grow. When you get shortages, basically, brewers have not communicated to the hop growers that we would like them to grow a particular variety of hops. And the way we communicate that to them is signing a contract that says, I would like to buy 20,000 pounds of Amarillo hops. And if we sign that contract, the growers will grow them for us. So, you know, people do get caught short because you thought you were going to need 10,000 pounds. Turned out you needed 13,000 pounds, and then you scramble. But no, um, there is not a hop shortage long-term. There will never be a long-term hop shortage. You drive through Yakima, the Willamette Valley, there's fields growing corn. Corn. (laughs) On wonderful growing areas for hops. They don't want to grow corn. They don't want to grow corn. No, I mean, I I grew up on a farm. Yeah, and lesser beverages like that. But for... You know, you really, and there's better places to grow corn than out there. I mean, corn, you, if you have a great year, you get 200 bushels. And in a great year, you get six bucks a bushel. So you get $1,200 for an acre. Okay. Hop yields, not hard to get 2,000 pounds, not hard to get $6 a pound. Do the math. Don't worry. We will pay what it takes to get the hops we need. When you spoke of the beer ingredients, you said there were four ingredients, and obviously one of those is yeast. Grapes don't become wine without yeast. Right. So you didn't give them credit. (laughs) But the math's still the same. You take yeast out of it. We got three ingredients. They got one. I'll take three to one. Is there any combination of ingredients that have scared you off from making a beer? That any combination of second? Any combination of ingredients that scared you off from making a beer? Scare me off. Hey, no. if I'm willing to make beer out of roosters and grilled beef hearts, I haven't been scared yet. I mean, the brewer's art has this enormous creativity, and because we have this huge world open to us, you know, our hearts are full of audacity. So there's just a fearlessness that's involved in being a brewer. I brew at home. You're a fearless man. <laughs> Does anything scare you other than Drano? I had that experience too. Uh, she got a little annoyed when I steamed the wallpaper off the kitchen. That was sort of scary. Uh, ex-wife, I'm sorry. <laughs> Less of a brewing question, more of a production one. And I know it's a not an easy beer to make. Is there any chance you're going to increase the production of Utopias and maybe send a little more to the D.C. area? Um, for those of you, uh, the question was about Sam Am's Utopias. Utopias is literally the lunatic fringe of brewing. Um, you know, I t- it, it is awesome. Yeah. It is a really cool thing to make. Um, it's a labor of love for us. To give you some idea, I mean, I talked about beer has this enormous range, ingredients, flavors, and taste. At the far end of that range is Samuel Adams Utopias. It weighs in at a, about 60 proof, yeah. about 30% 
alcohol. I don't even think it's legal here in the district. It's illegal in like 12 or 13 states, and I'm proud of that. Um, so, uh, and it's aged in uh, used primarily spirits, but other barrels, port barrels, Madeira barrels, uh, anything else? We got port, we got sherry, sherry. Madeira, um, and uh, it comes out, and, and some of it, that, and it's blended from lots of different barrels and, and years, the oldest going back to 1992. So we're blending in 23-year-old beer. As far as I know, that is the first beer in the world that is old enough to drink itself. So it takes a little while to make this. We slowly can ramp up the production, but we, we just we couldn't like ramp it up 30% without reducing the character and quality of it. So yeah, slowly. But just give me time. Yeah, give me ten more years. I thank you for doing this. I love the food pairings, and my favorite was the chocolate pairing with this with the Sam Lager. What are your couple other favorite desserts to pair with lager? I thought wine was going to kick its ass right there during the chocolate but it didn't yeah. that, was, that was the best one and, and I've never thought to do too. like a beer dinner with just desserts well I wanted to but <laughs> what else do you like with lager um, I love chocolate so I, and I feel the same way you do um, lager is a really really nice pairing with chocolate uh, my family grew up on chocolate. My, at Christmas, my dad would buy 50 pounds of chocolate, go to a confectionery supply store, and buy uh, 50 pounds. We all, there were four kids and my dad uh, and my mother. We all got 10-pound bars of chocolate. And there would be like a race among us to see who finished first. And my sister and I would finish them sometime in early March. Uh, so we typically won. Um, other things that I like with Boston Lager, uh, it's really good with ice cream. Same thing with chocolate ice cream, Dolce, uh, Dolce de Leche, um, which again, you know, I was talking about we're, our cuisine is not French and Italian now. We're getting ingredients from Mexico, Latin America, Spain, uh, like Dolce de Leche ice cream and Boston Lager is also really good. And of course, chocolate ice cream works the same way we saw the chocolate tonight. Hey, Jim. Um, so I think I know the answer to this question, but it was curious that all three pairings you did different wines, but you did the same beer with each pairing. Yes. Given the amount of styles of beer that are out there that Sam Adams and others make, why did you choose to pair every every yes. pairing with Sam Adams Lager? That's a really good question. I, I think I touched on it in the beginning. My point was that because of the complexity of ingredients and, and flavors in beer, beer can be more versatile. I mean, when you went across these three pairings, there was no way that that Roquefort cheese would do well with the red wines. To me, it would have been acidity piled on acidity. 
So this was kind of like, okay, let's tie our hands behind our back and have three really great wines and, and very nice pairings. Uh, we wanted to make the point that a great beer like Boston Lager has the complexity and versatility to match up against three quite, well, two very similar. I couldn't, I don't think most people could have told the difference between them. But a third, extremely different kind of wine. But we could tie our hands behind our back and be and, and show some very illuminating pairings. Um, as a company, how do you go about the removal of your spent grains? How do we go about go about the removal get, of your spent of grains? Yeah. Okay. Um, the question is, what do we do with our spent grains? Spent grain is what. Well, when you make beer. Uh, just very simply, um, beer is made with uh, water, yeast, malt, and hops. Malt is typically the grain barley that has been malted, and malting is a process. Um, you can malt corn, you can malt rye, you can malt wheat. Malting um, steeps the grain in warm water to trick the grain into thinking it's springtime and it should germinate and grow. So you trick it into germinating and the grain is this interesting little package of uh, it's got food and then it's got a little baby plant in it. And it stores the food for that plant in the form of carbohydrates, which are very long chains of sugars, because that's the most stable way to store the energy. Now, the little baby plant can't eat these long carbohydrate molecules. So inside the grain is a package of enzymes, which when the grain uh, is warmed up and moistened, uh, meaning springtime, uh, the enzymes will attack the carbohydrate chains and break them into their constituent sugars. Carbohydrates are long chains of simple sugars. So the germination, uh, this malting process, uh, breaks the long carbohydrates into sugars that the plant can eat. But then we kind of steal those sugars and uh, extract them out of the grain and uh, make this warm, sweet liquid called wort, which we then add the hops to, boil it, cool it down, put yeast in it, and a week later you got beer. So that's the entire brewing process. It's that complicated. If you've ever wondered how you make beer, that's why you can make beer at home and it's perfectly good. Very simple. Um, but uh, the question raised was, what do you do with all that the spent grain, which is the actual grain? We've taken this sugar, about 25% of the nutritional value out in this sweet liquid that we then boil and brew and ferment. And you got tons and tons of of wet grain that you don't need. You got to, you know, so you got to find something to do with it. Um, what we do with it is it's an awesome cattle feed. Cows love it. 
Um, and they actually really love it because, you know, typically you put it in a silo uh, outside the brewery or some other container. Kind of gets warm in there, starts to ferment. Uh, and somebody comes from a dairy farm, takes it away, uh, and feeds the cows this very delicious I mean cows eat a lot of crap but uh, this is really delicious it's sweet and it's got alcohol in it so uh, we have very contented cows <laughs> so that's what happens to it it becomes milk and ultimately cheese so uh, that's what I was talking about cheese and beer sort of flow from the same origins so I was wondering if uh, Sam Adams has a long-term commitment to the long shot homebrew competition, <laughs> which I've loved for 20 years. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, so that's the first question. And related to that, could you describe the number of entrants you've had over the years and the selection yeah. process? Okay. Um, the question is about the long shot competition. Uh, and it's something we started 20 years ago. To, so to answer your question, I think 20 years is a long-term commitment. Uh, and uh, it came out of, you know, my uh, history and involvement with craft brewing for 31 years. Because a very few of you know this, but the roots and origins of the craft brewing movement in the United States came out of home brewing. Most of the pioneers in craft brewing were home brewers. You know, uh, I was a home brewer before I started Sam Adams. Uh, Ken Grossman uh, ran a home brew shop. So most of the pioneers in craft brewing came out of home brewing. And uh, Tom talked about the Great American Beer Festival, which not only is the largest uh, beer celebration in America, it is the largest beer festival in the galaxy. It uh, is definitely the biggest on the earth, and I don't think any aliens are so evolved they figured out how to make beer. So um, I will say it is the largest uh, beer celebration in the galaxy, but uh, the Great American Beer Festival came out of the Homebrewers Convention. Those of you who were around, I mean, Greg probably remembers, back in the early 80s, the, there, were no, there was no craft beer convention. Craft beer, the name had, didn't even exist. There were, you know, I remember the first time there was like a, uh, a gathering of craft brewers as part of the Homebrewers Convention. It was a smaller room than this. We sat around a circle, and God love him, Bill Coors showed up for us. And I, I thought it was very cool. That was because they were like huge, you know, but he came to talk to, I don't know, there were maybe 15, 20 of us, and he came and talked to us. I thought that was really cool. It tells you a lot about uh, the family roots and, and uh, the generosity of the Coors family. Uh, but it was this rump sort of event at the end of the Homebrewers Convention. It was like a, basically a beer tasting. Uh, uh, at the end of the Homebrewers Convention, uh, there were fewer than 100 beers in the beginning. But when at least I started, and I think the other early craft brewers started, the only people who kind of 
understood what we were trying to do was homebrewers. So I have always been grateful to the homebrewing community for their uh, nurturing and sustaining craft brewing in the very early years. And as part of celebrating that, uh, for the last 20 years, we've been doing something called Long Shot, which invites the best homebrews in the United States to send a sample in. We do a judging. Uh, we pick the two best homebrews in the United States. Uh, and then a third homebrew, which actually comes from the employees of the Boston Beer Company. Our people are brewers. Uh, it's a company of brewers. So it's like, send in your best beer. And they're really good. They stand alongside the best homebrews from the entire homebrewing community. And we release it in a six-pack that has two beers from each of the three winners. And, you know, homebrewing comes and goes. It has its waves and cycles. But uh, it's something we've done for uh, 20-some years. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be do the, doing the judging uh, for the long shot competition, which Jennifer uh, organizes uh, and orchestrates and then helps us judge. So it's a cool thing that we've done. It's kind of, nobody really knows about it, but I am forever grateful for the help that I got and just the understanding, empathy, and support that came out of those early homebrewers 35 years ago. So kind of playing off that last question, I know last year in D.C. we got the Sphinx, which was a homebrewer uh, beer, and then last fall we had the Cosmic Mother Funk Tour. What is coming next is kind of my question there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's just lots of things that uh, I'm working on. I mean, to me, one of the... Uh, man, well, I've been doing this for 31 years. I get it. I have to get out of bed every morning and be motivated by it. And uh, you know, I got to get out of bed and be excited. I mean, I started this morning at 6:30 with a group of brewers and our distributor, and we all talked a little, did a little talk to each other, and made jokes, and you know, and it's long days. It's not hard work. There's no heavy lifting, but you got to be excited every day, you know, to put in 14, 15 hour days for 31 years in a row. And what I get excited about is doing new, cool things. And at this moment in this country, there is more cool stuff going on in brewing than has ever existed before in the 12,000 years that human beings have been fermenting grain into alcohol. So there's just all these exciting things that you know you can do. And right now, you know, there's a whole bunch of things. Some of them will see the light of day. A lot of them will fail. You know, we make a lot of bad beers. Um, hopefully, none of them actually get out into the market. I don't think very many of you uh, had the beef heart beer. Um, we did get a few thousand nasty uh, emails from you know, vegetarians and uh, things like that. So, and I'm a vegetarian, but it was like 
you know, I didn't kill the cow. I mean, they were already dead before we grilled the hearts. So uh, I felt bad about it. But, you know, chef showed up with them and we had to do something. So that would be cool stuff. I mean, we're playing around with how can you amp up uh, the hop character in IPAs. Um, I've come to believe that they have a much shorter uh, freshness period than other beers, so we've actually raised our freshness standards. We just uh, cut the shelf life of our IPAs down to three months because uh, I'm finding a big fall off in those. I hope that helps energize some thinking about how long does a really great IPA continue to deliver that beautiful blast of hops. Um, we're playing around with nitro beers uh, to see that's an ing- ultimate ingredient in beer is carbonation. Well, nothing is fixed. And there's just this amazing creativity among all my craft brewing brethren of rethinking everything. Oh, gosh, I think four years ago we did the beer uh, for Savor um, with one of uh, the most amazing brewers in the world, Sam Calgioni out there. Sam, like, knows no boundaries. He said, let's think about water. Why do we have to brew with water? What if we make a beer based on flowers and we'll make it, we made it in our Boston brewery, but Sam sent us uh, thousands of gallons of rose water. So we made a beer with rose water. So there's, I mean, the people out in that room are the most amazing creative brewers in the world. There is more energy, passion, commitment, creativity, and innovation in that room than has ever existed in 12,000 years of brewing history. And I'm very fortunate to be a part of it. And thank you for drinking our beers. We couldn't make them. Cheers. Thank you all very much for coming. I think the answer is there will be more cool stuff. Enjoy the evening. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Jim, Jennifer. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2015, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2015, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com. <laughs>